Howdy folks, welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, and here on A Green Way Forward, we take a look at issues and concepts and ideas, but specifically through the perspective and lens of the Green Party, the four pillars of the International Green Party, which are peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. And I always like to remind viewers slash listeners, depending on how you're uh, consuming this particular media, that those four pillars of the International Green Party movement make up an interconnected idea or worldview. Ecology, the understanding that Mother Earth is an interconnected system, uh, that anything that we do to that system, ultimately we do to ourselves. And it's also important to recognize that whether you come at that from a hard science uh, perspective, or you come at it uh, from an eco-spiritual perspective, or as I do, you recognize that both are true, the idea of ecology uh, is absolutely central to the Green Party. In addition, the Green Party's pillar of social justice, bluntly the idea that political and economic and social institutions ought to be fair, and we know and you know that they are not. And so in the United States, the Greens specifically say social and racial justice because we understand the creation of white supremacy. We understand the reality of racial injustice literally being embedded into the institutions of our society. The third pillar of democracy is equally simple, and that simply means that any decision that affects your life, you ought to have an opportunity to help participate in making that decision. Doesn't mean that you get your way but it does mean that you should be empowered to actually help to make the decision. And of course, the word democracy comes from the Attic Greek, demos meaning the people, kratia meaning power or rule. So literally democracy means the people rule or the people have the power, but I know and you know, and everybody paying attention knows that we the people are actually not ruling in the United States or really anywhere in the world. We are in fact being ruled by a small ruling elite, an oligarchy. The fourth pillar of the International Green Party movement is a commitment to nonviolence. And I really want to drill down here because we recognize that the Green Party is, in fact, a revolutionary party. We are talking about transforming the social, political, and economic institutions uh, that currently exist. That is, by definition, a revolutionary approach, and we commit ourselves to doing so nonviolently. We reject the idea of using violence as an affirmative political tool. But I also want to point out that that also does not mean that you have to be a pacifist to be a Green Party member. To be sure, there are many pacifist Greens, uh, but that does not mean that you have to be a pacifist to agree with nonviolence. And we can tease that out if anyone likes. And of course, as on every show, I'll encourage you to write in with any questions or comments, and we will talk about any issues that you're interested in. Executive uh, producer Michael O'Neill is standing by and will be feeding those. One thing that I do want to make sure that we uh, make sure to talk about something that was absolutely hot in the news, and that is the fact that there was a short-term governmental shutdown and that uh, the governmental shutdown is not over because, frankly, uh, Chuck Schumer, U.S. Senator, Democrat, is maybe the single worst negotiator in Washington. And that's not just my opinion. That happens to be the opinion of Credo Action. And it's worth pointing out, folks, that Credo Action is 
a very progressive liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Now, they're their own thing to be sure, but they almost constantly are supporting uh, the liberal and progressive Democrats. They are not a Green Party uh, mouthpiece. But I think it's important to recognize that Credo, uh, and I'm going to actually quote uh, from the press release that Credo spent out in response to today's vote to end the Trump shutdown. Quote, it's official. Chuck Schumer is the worst negotiator in Washington, even worse than Trump, says Credo political director Merced Zahid. Any plan to protect dreamers that relies on the world of serial liars like Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, or Donald Trump is doomed, doomed to fail. The fact is, Republicans do not want to protect dreamers, and they won't do it unless Democrats force their hand by insisting that a clean DREAM Act is attached to a must-pass spending bill. In getting outmaneuvered by Senator McConnell today, Chuck Schumer has failed dreamers and let the entire Democratic Party down, period, end quote. So let's unpack that a little bit. Remember, this is a Democrat criticizing the Democrats and saying that like it's the Republicans' fault and, the, and, and Schumer was a bad Democrat for, for not going forward. Folks, I'm going to drill down here. It's actually way worse than this, and we have to come to terms with the reality because Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Party itself agreed to fund Trump's wall if he would agree to end the governmental shutdown. Let that sink in a minute. Trump didn't agree to it, but Schumer is already touting on the talk shows that he offered that and Trump turned it down. What the F? If there is going to be, is this what passes for resistance? Is this what passes for fighting for dreamers to use them as a negotiating tool and a ploy? And the, yes, absolutely it's true that this is a terrible deal. But the reality is, and yes, it's true that the Republicans don't want to protect dreamers, but you know what else is true? The Democratic Party leadership do not want to protect dreamers. The reality is the entire notion of undocumented people coming into the United States is full on, absolutely, positively a result of the foreign policy of the United States of America. It is absolutely, positively a reaction to the North American Free Trade Agreement, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank policies, all of which the neoliberal Democratic Party elite uh, have been supporting. And of course, it needs to be said, NAFTA would not exist now if the uh, Democrats had not shoved it down our throats, and that is under Bill Clinton and Al Gore and the entire Democratic Leadership Council. By the way, the Democratic Leadership Council doesn't even exist anymore. Why? Because it doesn't have to exist, because they literally are the Democratic National Committee. And now at this point in the show, I want to say and remind you that if you're watching on Facebook, uh, you can type in right now into the comment section any comment, any question, we'll get that to you. I want to remind you, the listener or viewer, again, depending on how you're uh, watching this or listening to it or otherwise consuming the media, that we are building podcasts and video uh, broadcasts that you can sign up for and uh, consume them at your heart's content. Please go to the website, agreenwayforward.com or agreenwayforward.org. Either one, it will get to you, but you need to sign up and let us know 
uh, how you would like to actually receive the, the, the podcast or the video and give us feedback. Uh, Michael and I go through that feedback and we use it to try to improve this programming. So already Tricia has written in to say, let's talk about the lack of interest or silence by so-called progressives to white supremacist imperialism and war, which is killing brown folks by the millions overseas. Wow, Tricia, literally, uh, I couldn't say it better. And I almost think that I should turn the microphone over to you because in one short sentence, you've really encapsulated the interconnectedness between war and foreign policy uh, and imperialism that is actually driving not only the, uh, the migration of people that are being forced uh, to actually uh, try to find an ability to find work, to be able to have money, to be able to feed their families. It also underscores what you have said, and I think so eloquently and so horrifically, and that is this foreign policy is based on imperialism. It is absolutely based on stealing the resources of other people and killing brown and black people uh, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in South America, all across the world. And I also want to name this, folks. This kind of imperialism is absolutely imperialism, but it's a new version because it's not the traditional nation-state uh, imperialism of conquest of territory that we've seen before, but it's actually something new because it is a corporatized fascist kind of imperialism where U.S. service personnel pay with blood, sweat, and tears to steal and kill other people in order to take their resources, not to benefit the nation state of the United States of America, but to benefit the corporations and the multinational corporations, most of whom are in fact headquartered or chartered here in the United States, but many are not. Uh, many are actually chartered in other places. So, Tricia, I absolutely appreciate the fact uh, that you are lifting that issue up and the silence is deafening on the part of Democratic Party leadership. And yes, you're right, most so-called progressives who absolutely ignore that. And I, for one, want to add my voice to your voice and to other people's voices lifting that up. I also want to encourage you to take a look at... Uh, Green Party vice presidential uh, candidate Barack, uh, uh, Jammu Baraka and his Black Alliance for Peace initiative. Uh, he was just a keynote speaker at a no military bases uh, conference that happened uh, in D.C. Uh, a whole host of people uh, participated in that. It was an amazing uh, conference. I was not able to attend, but I did view it uh, online and it uh uh, it integrated all of the issues that you've just described. Uh, Klaus writes in. David, yes, may, uh, Michael O'Neill, come on. So uh, one thing that came to mind as uh, you were responding to Trisha's comment is that the the you know Dreamer, the DACA you know provision that the Democrats are failing to protect, it is in and of, its, of itself a neoliberal immigration policy, which you know has been critiqued. Uh, very scathingly from the left. I mean, to qualify for DACA and these, you know, deferred uh, actions regarding people's uh, residency here, you basically have to be profitable to the market, or you need to join the military. 
Uh, I mean, that's kind of part of the, this pathway to immigration, this neoliberal pathway to immigration that was set out by Obama. And, uh, and so it's this kind of dividing of, quote, good immigrants from, quote, bad immigrants. The good ones being the ones who are getting higher education or have higher education and who might be profitable to the market or who are willing to serve in the military and serve that imperialistic uh, regime that you were just uh, talking about, that same imperialism that drove so many people to this country away from their homes in the first place. They can't even muster themselves to defend that. Right. And I love, Michael O'Neill, how you brought, not only did you bring it home, but you, you drove it even deeper. And I, I, I want to actually unpack that a little bit because it is true that the deferred action, uh, uh, the DACA plan itself is a neoliberal plan. And Michael is absolutely correct. In order to even qualify, you have to either prove yourself profitable to the market or join the military. Look at the interconnectedness uh, of what Michael just sort of described, I think, so very accurately. In addition to that, even with that proposal, we would be remiss if we did not remind ourselves, our viewers, our listeners, that President Barack Obama was the deporter in chief. President Barack Obama departed far more human beings, far more immigrants to this community, uh, this country, uh, than did any of the Republicans before him. Uh, and even this profoundly flawed system, the Democrats threw under the bus, were unable, unwilling to actually fight even for that, much less the Green Party's uh, position on actually welcoming people, but not only to welcome people, but also to get to the point that we're not forcing migration in the first place. The Green New Deal that the Green Party supports uh, would actually recognize the need to revamp our entire foreign policy uh, so that it's actually based on justice and fairness to begin with. So thanks for that. Uh, Michael O'Neill. And I, I got to say, Klaus, whoever you are and wherever you are, your one word comment is ringing in my ears. Folks who can't see it, he said, Mick resistance. I think that's exactly right, because what we're seeing is the McDonaldization uh, of politics that's being led by the Democratic Party leadership. And I got to say, I know that there are many people who are still registered in the Democratic Party, who still believe it's possible to somehow reform that party and make that party the party uh, uh, for liberal ideas or progressive ideas. I don't believe it's possible. You know, I don't believe that it's actually possible uh, to, to, to turn the Democratic Party into a tool of transformation or revolution. As uh, Dr. Jill Sign often says, you cannot have a revolution within a counter-revolutionary party. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's also true that we have to recognize that, that what you see the Democratic Party trying to do is literally nothing more than to vilify and demonize Trump so that people can immediately say, and they're already beginning the process of trying to create an anybody but Trump mantra. And of course, the Democrats will have somebody who is anybody but Trump. And I, for one, am clear. I am not going to fall for that. I hope you won't fall for it. I hope that we will actually build an independent political force that, that, and by independent, I mean financially independent, 
from the neoliberals and the billionaire class that are controlling the two major parties. I also mean independent in terms of creating our own platform, our own program. I think it's also important to recognize that we have to come to terms with the interconnected reality of patriarchy and imperialism and capitalism and white supremacy. And we're going to have to deconstruct and dismantle those systems and create new ones independently. I believe that it is most likely that the Green Party will be that political party because ultimately there has to be an electoral arm of that party. Ultimately, there has to be a way for us not only to be in the streets uh, protesting and demonstrating, but we also have to be in the pool halls and the bowling alleys uh, and the coffee shops and everywhere people congregate. We need to be engaging, grappling, talking to them where they are, listening attentively, respectfully to their issues and their concerns, trying to find the common ground and find the alignment where we can. And ultimately, my friends, we are going to have to run candidates for office on the program and platform of that independent mass movement. Because it's actually quite simple to talk about how transformational change happens. And that is this. You need a social movement that is in the streets, in the pool halls, the bowling alleys, and the coffee shops. That movement must be broad, deep, conscious, and militant, willing to be disruptive of the system. In addition to that, you need an electoral arm. You need people willing to run for office uh, on that program and those platforms so that we can make new public policy. I believe in fighting for reforms to make people's lives better, but to do it as a revolutionary. In other words, reform alone is not enough. We need restructuring. We need economic democracy, socialism, however you want to talk about it. But the reality is we need a new economic system, a new political system, a new social system. So John writes in to say, a year ago, Chuck Schumer said his number one priority was corporate tax cuts. Did I read that correctly? John writes in to say, a year ago, Schumer said his number one priority was corporate tax cuts. I got to tell you, John, if you can uh, find uh, a verification of that, please either write in, call in, somehow get that information to me or Michael O'Neill and a Greenway Forward, because I don't know that that's true. Uh, it may be. I'm not saying it's not. Uh, but I don't have independent knowledge and I don't remember that. But if that is, in fact, what Chuck Schumer said was his number one legislative priority, I would actually like to plaster that all over my social media personally. I would like to make sure that a green way forward is a mechanism and a vehicle to describe that. And Michael O'Neill, I'm wondering if if you have a memory of that, because I'll be candid, I don't. Uh, that's not to say it's not true, but I just don't actually remember that about Schumer. I mean, it sounds like I just don't remember. Yeah, I found an article from October of last year, October 12th, actually it's almost over a year ago, October 2016. So this would have been before the, the actual election took place. He told CNBC that one of his top two 2017 priorities would be an enormous corporate tax cut. Quote, we've got to get things done. The two things that come that popped to mind because Schumer, Clinton, and Ryan have all said to support these are immigration and some kind of international tax reform tied to a large infrastructure program, um, which would have been, you know, uh, which would have included uh, corporate tax cuts. So that's that was reported by The Intercept and a number of other publications uh, 
at the time. Fantastic. So first I got to say, John, thank you so much. And I love the fact that in this uh, a green way forward, we are able to integrate uh, the audience the way that we just did, and it makes this program better. And thank you, Michael O'Neill, for being uh, so on it uh, to be able to confirm it. And I know that you're going to drop that into the comment section on Facebook. And if you are uh, listening to the podcast, uh, know that there will be a hyperlink available to that as well. The point I'm making is this. Uh, this program is better because of your participation. And I'm going to encourage you, if you're watching it on Facebook, to share the broadcast on your own Facebook feed. If you're listening to it as a podcast, share the podcast with other friends and family members. Because remember, as we often say, the revolution will not be televised. Of course, that's Gil Scott Heron. But I'm going to riff on Gil Scott Heron for a moment and say, the revolution may not be televised, but it can be and will be brought to you over the sources of non-corporately filtered news, information, and analysis. And a green way forward, the content of this program is absolutely, positively, 100% completely autonomous. Uh, we are independent. Uh, Michael O'Neill and I have full discretion over what we say, how we say it. There are no corporate donors. There are no corporate funders. Uh, and yes, I recognize the irony associated with, with using uh, Facebook and other uh, corporate mechanisms as the platform for it. But stay tuned, friends, because we are exploring and experimenting with additional platforms. My, but the thing that I am really excited about is the fact that we are building an audience and you are helping us build that audience. Literally thousands Tens of thousands of people are hearing and or watching this, and it's all thanks to you. So we'll go back uh, to the comments. Michael tells us that Missy writes in to say, is it up to white people to dissemble the racist power structure? The short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer is yes and. By that, I mean this, Missy. Uh, the, the reality is that the racist power structure is a meta system. And so it's actually going to take all of us. We have to transform institutions and mechanisms uh, in order to dismantle the structures. And that takes all of us, including people of color. Uh, but the ability for white people to actually understand the enormous, profound, unearned, and usually sadly unexamined privileges that they get associated with these structures, that's up to white people, right? Uh, uh, and that's up for us to actually not only come to terms with it, but to understand it and to frankly try not to be defensive as we begin to understand it. There is a concept that I see playing out all the time, and I know I experience it and suffer from it uh, as well sometimes, and that's called white fragility. Uh, this is the idea that white people who have had our entire lived experience uh, uh, in a cocoon, in a bubble, uh, where whiteness is absolutely normal, where our culture and our customs are absolutely normal, and we never get challenged on us. And because of that, uh, we become quite fragile and quite weak. And anytime we get challenged on it at all, or uh, get taught, uh, or somebody tries to educate us, as a person of color about what their lived experiences are, that we have a tendency to shut down, 
to get defensive, to play the not all white people card. Uh, that, that's a uh, that's an example of the role that white people specifically have got to play in deconstructing and unlearning a lot of the frankly nonsense that we've been taught. Uh, but we also have got to recognize that frankly, unless we unite and fight as a class, and by that I mean the fact is that unless you own the means of production, that is the factories and the, the, and the farms and, and everything that it takes to actually create the things that we need to live, unless you're in that 1% or the 0.01% uh, of the oligarchy class, uh, you know, you are actually uh, uh, dependent. Uh, we are dependent. And so this is where, for me, intersectionality comes in and where the understanding of white supremacy and capitalism is so incredibly important because, frankly, we have to unite as a class across race and gender and sexual orientation, knowing full well and being willing to critique heteronormativity and white supremacy and capitalism, but we have to unite and fight together because, for me, I'm not fighting to save this dying system. The ecological, political, and economic crisis that we're living in is not coming, it's here and getting worse. See, I'm not trying to fight to save this system, I'm fighting to create a new system. And that's the reason why it's gonna actually uh, take a multiracial, multi-ethnic, class-conscious group of people to disassemble and de deconstruct these systems and create new ones. And I thank you very much for, for the provocative question and the opportunity for me uh, to expound on it a little bit here on A Green Way Forward. And as I always do, as we come to the end of the program, I wanna give you, Michael O'Neill, an opportunity to share any closing thoughts uh, because Michael O'Neill is not just the executive producer, he's also uh, a paid staffer with the Green Party of New York State. He is on the national delegation for, of, of New York to the Green Party of the United States. Uh, he was a key member of the Jill Stein Ajamu Baraka presidential uh, ticket. Uh, uh, he is an organizer uh, of some repute in his own right. So, Michael O'Neill, I'm curious, any closing thoughts for this particular program? Uh, David, just a little housekeeping. Uh, I think you, you mentioned before we got started that uh, we wanted to give a shout out to the Green Party U.S. National Convention. Uh, or I should say annual meeting being announced for 2018 in Salt Lake City. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you so much. Once again, folks, Michael O'Neill saved my bacon. A big shout out to the Green Party of the United States, the annual national uh, meeting, and uh, the Utah Green Party because they actually will be hosting uh, the 2018 uh, Green Party meeting. Uh, it is going to take place in Salt Lake City. Uh, it is going to take place over the summer. Uh, Give me one moment and I will give you that information unless you have it at the tip of your tongue, Michael. I do not. Um, but while, okay. you're, while so, you're looking that up, while you're looking that up, um, we also talked about, uh, as we were pre preparing for this evening's show uh, about a week ago, about maybe talking about the work of Jane McAlevey in an upcoming episode. And I just wanted to mention that she has uh, an article out very recently in In These Times. And then there was an interview also recently uh, published with her and what Jane has to say about the Me Too movement and sort of tying the 
issue of, of harassment of women in the workplace to the lack of power that workers have generally in the workplace and the way that um, you know, capitalism and patriarchy conspire together to devalue and, and socially marginalize the work that uh, historically has been, quote, women's work, or the work that women move into taking on. And so, uh, you know, looking at this as a structural issue and one of, of workers' rights and, and needing, you know, collective worker solidarity, as opposed to just looking at individual evil people like Harvey Weinstein, who of course are monsters and should be castigated and vilified, but there are, you know, there's a, a, a broader, more systemic problem at work there too. So take a look for uh, Jane McAlevey in, in these times. Thank you so much for that, Michael. And yes, I think that let's make an entire program on that and maybe we'll even try uh, to get Jane on and interview her. So I think that's a fantastic. And I want to say that the Green Party of the United States annual national meeting uh, will be July 20 through 22 in Salt Lake City. Uh, I, you can go to the Green Party's website, gp.org. See how clever that is, gp.org. Uh, and you can find out more information. I'd love for you to come out uh, and let's meet. Let's have coffee. Let's, let's, let's conspire. Let's, let's work together to create the peaceful, just, democratic, and ecologically sustainable world that we so desperately need and so richly deserve. Thank you so much for watching and or listening to A Green Wave Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. We'll be back with another program. Peace.